So this is the first night of a week-long retreat for some of you. Some of you have already been here for a week and are just continuing on for another week. Of course, there's residents here who have been here for a few years. And then there's me, being here 17 years and continuing on. <laughs> I feel blessed to have been here for 17 years. It's a beautiful time of year as well. It's uh, not too hot, not too cold, and something beautiful will happen in the next few days, which I always look forward to, is that go out and look at the aspen trees. Have a good look at aspen trees because they're bare right now. They're absolutely sticks sticking into the air, right? But in two or three days, or even less, you'll see this kind of Renoir has come in the night and painted it with the beautiful green, washed-out green color. These are the leaves just appearing in a very rapid time, so it's quite magical. But you have to take it in as bare first. Now, that's a nice nature imagery and so forth. Nature is lovely, but also everything is a simile or a metaphor for the inner life. So there can be barren aspects to our inner life that can leaf, you know, and come into full existence. They may come in, these new developments, they may come in lightly, at first, but they intensify. Ajahn Chah, the uh, founding teacher of this Western monastic structures, used to talk about, after a while, everything is dhamma. You know, cut the grass, it's dhamma. You know, you're cutting your defilements, or, you know, everything turns into dhamma. We have a gravel garden out there, and that gravel garden with a few boulders idea comes from comes actually from China. You'll see the most famously represented in um, Japan. But I was surprised to find similar gardens in uh, Sri Lanka that are very, very old. In the Japanese gardens, quite often, you know, there's this perfect rectangle of swept gravel, and then there's these boulders around. There could be three or five or up to uh, 13. And if you ask them, what is this? They will say, well, that's... That big one over there is the Buddha, <laughs> and so forth. So the actual external world ceases to be literal, and your internal world becomes literal, and the external world just becomes a metaphor. It's only handy for symbolic references to your inner life. I think it's the development of a human is that the outer world at first is the thing that catches your attention and you get preoccupied with it, you're attempting to manipulate it, engaging with frustrations and gratifications, and it seems very important. But then another stage of development, the inner life becomes, you start to realize really the only game in town is the inner life. And then the outer life just falls in importance, the outer life falls away. And the inner life is where it's at. It's a delightful experience. When we dwell in the outer world, it's not as rich experience as the inner world. They don't really compare. The outer world is measurable. You can divide it up. You can add it together. You can 
play with it, etc. But it doesn't have intrinsic emotional value to you. So it's the inner world where emotion occurs. And emotion is where we get value. Logical thinking processes don't have value to them. I mean, they have practical value, but they don't have something that we say, this is good, this is beautiful, this is wonderful. It's just facts. And so we have to realize that, especially as our life goes by so quickly, that we must aspire to the experience of well-being and the experience of goodness, truth, and beauty. And without that, it's a series of little fragmented photos that just don't mean much. They don't tell a story. But with that development, our life is sensible. The story makes sense. When we go deeper and deeper into our meditative development, and development of meditation is really, again, an emotional structure of development. So we're doing a lot of training of the mind with mindfulness and sustained attention and on certain themes and also on certain abstract experiences like the breath, which is no real thought content to it. But it's very valuable. See, these exercises in development of not necessarily intellectual apparatus, but other parts of the mind. These are just tools for the purification or the illumination of the emotional structure. Enlightenment is always described in terms of the factors of enlightenment, the factors of awakening. And in them are some necessary supports like mindfulness and uh, sustained inquiry. Before enlightenment, we need to develop our curiosity and sustained inquiry, but in certain directions. So not just into everything, and probably some of you are curious about a lot of things, probably have read a lot of books and thought about a lot of things. And However, the Buddha is interested in harnessing all of your intellect and curiosity in a certain direction. He says that this is the one that has most rewards. If you can just get everything flowing and focusing towards this as a priority in your life, to harness your intellectual inquiry, your curiosity, that will have the most benefit of your gray matter. Energy in your life will increase. you find the sources of your psychic energy, and you'll find the sources of how it's blocked or diminished and how to release that. And along with that comes joy. So there we start to talk about emotion. I mean, if we don't have joy, you don't have a meaningful experience. Sorrow and boredom, uh, all the neutral feelings and the negative feelings are all, they can be very intense, they can be very deep, but they don't give you a confirmation of meaning. Beyond that becomes these beautiful refinements of tranquility and profound serenity, deepening it to great stillness and ultimately into this emotional experience of equanimity, which is the experience of your mind, your whole being being perfectly balanced in the midst of the inevitable flows, changes, 
uncertainties, a sense of absolute stillness and perfect balance. These are the uh, spectrum of the positive emotions, and this path is all about cultivation of positive emotions. Sometimes we get the feeling that it's just all about change or impermanence and being aware of change and impermanence, but in fact, the feature of impermanence is there. It does not mean that certain qualities of mind cannot be sustained indefinitely, and there are certain areas of the emotional structure that should not be, uh, that should be left behind. So there's not a neutral version of everything that goes on in your mind is all equally just impermanent, and that's the point of the exercise. It's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to diminish negative emotional states until they disappear and cultivate and bring into strength and development positive emotional states associated with good operation of the faculties of the mind and the determination to stay there. They change. Sometimes you go to sleep, sometimes you wake up, sometimes they're stronger, weaker, lighter, moving. The needle moves from joy to tranquility to depth to equanimity, back to joy, to etc. It moves in that direction, but it's supposed to stay in that field. And that's the aspiration to enlightenment. It only can stay in that field when you solve some issues, you solve some problems about the nature of life. The inner life and the relationship to the outer world. And the outer world is all of that which is completely out of your control, or at least partially out of your control, and which you have an emotional relationship with. That's the definition of wisdom from a Buddhist point of view, this a recognition of how things are in the world, your relationship to the flowing, dynamic nature of reality around you, and the awareness that uh, your mind and the, its products, the emotional products, are very malleable and can be trained, shaped, and it's a work of art in progress. And we just never get tired of this particular art project. It supersedes all other projects. It's the ultimate art, and it has the ultimate rewards. So that's what this uh, opportunity to come and experience in a week is just to have a workshop with uh, convivial company in the ordinary run of life. It's quite frequently you are associated with people who are, have no intention of doing any of this whatsoever and in fact have coarse energies that are going in completely opposite directions. So Here's why you go off to a retreat, is that you get an envelope for the possibility of cultivating and exploring this. What can I do? I have only a week. And of course, this is a week of really good space. It doesn't end there. It may initiate something. So when you go back, you've got something to carry on with, some energies to carry on with. And so this is the beautiful opportunity and envelope. And it's really just for each person. Every single one of you will practice in a different way. You'll be at a different stage and so forth. And it's not any concern of yours about anybody else's mind. It's your only concern is about your own mind during this retreat. But you will find, and I think at the end of it, 
we will have a closing circle and it's quite amazing how uh, supportive just other people are who are earnestly engaged in the practice just to be in the same room with them. There's a strange kind of communion that happens without even speaking to each other. I mean, this is probably the highest and most refined human art that you can engage in, and it can be kind of symphonic. Before I was a monk, I was a classical musician, and I think one of the great highest products of European civilization is the full symphony orchestra. The level of sophistication and the art of sound that's produced by that requires incredible amount of training, a whole society which supports the entire thing, large architectural structures, great instrument makers, great musicians, composers, and then the willingness of 70 or 80 or 100 people to cooperate at the highest possible level. And then a whole audience of people who are cooperating as well or educating themselves and understanding this. And it all merges together in a brief period of time. That's very impressive what humans can pull off. But I don't think it's as good as a meditation retreat. For people to come and do a seven-day silent symphony and to cooperate, to use the great compositions of the Buddha, beautiful themes, and uh, the architecture that has to be put in place is a huge infrastructure that you just to get in out of the rain. You know, you have to, a lot of work, you know. And then other people have, we have to feed ourselves and all of this kind of stuff. So there's a great cooperative process, which I think is the most admirable production in the history of the world. And it's a big organization. The Buddhist Sangha and the meditative structures are persisting for several thousand years and they're spread all over the planet and still very vital and pertinent to our times. They don't go out of style. The human, the meaning of your life, the quality of your life, that theme never goes out of style. We never get past that one. And as this is developing, I'm watching the music of our time and our place in this culture relating to Dhamma and meditation. I'm watching it develop and get better and more sophisticated and people with more experience and deepening their knowledge and their understanding the history of it and the inside details of just what we're doing with our minds and various schools and which ones are appropriate to you and etc. This is advancing, developing. It's very beautiful. So we're seeing this and we're in it. So this is a piece, this is an artwork, beautiful opportunity. And of course, with any art, there's a sweat as well to it and failures. We can't always play the, the great violin piece. It comes and goes, but we keep practicing. And this retreat, I will uh, probably, you know, I mean, last retreat, every single talk was strictly on loving kindness. So <laughs> people have heard some of this stuff before. I don't know if I'll actually be able to say stuff I've not said before, but I will probably spend a good deal of time on the subject of loving kindness, but there'll be other things mixed in as well. Why loving-kindness? Because when you raise the quality of loving-kindness, it eliminates the most pernicious and opposite 
thing in human life, and that is hostility and anger and the whole spectrum of aversion, which ranges from boredom to irritability, even depression is a form of aversion. This is the most problematic aspect of human existence, of the mind, the emotional aspect. It causes trouble for the person who's experiencing it, and then it causes trouble for everybody around them, and uh, distorts your way of thinking. You can't think straight. All you can see are the faults in everything, and the problem with everything. And It's a dispiriting kind of experience. And so, if we could just weaken that, or replace that, that's one of the most bountiful experiences in human life. To step into lightness of heart and goodwill, forgiveness, and to let go of all of that negativity and to realize this is why it's the most famous emotion in human history. This is profound goodwill, unconditional goodwill for beings, including oneself. And it's something that one can live in. It's a beautiful place to live. So it's not something that's for beginners. It's something for all levels of development. The Buddha himself dwelled regularly in the divine experience of loving-kindness. He had monks and nuns who did nothing else 24 hours a day. And interestingly, they mostly lived by themselves. Solitude is a great place to practice loving-kindness. Just like a practice room is a great place to practice a violin piece. Every now and then you get to play for an audience of a few or of many, but it's very conducive to practice in quiet silence, supported by other beings quietly there. This is a beautiful place to cultivate this positive emotion. It doesn't require an audience. The music is there, the profundity is there, and it's produced by yourself, and it's radiated out. So this is the value and uh, beauty of this cultivation. And it removes that which is one of the great distortions and great problems of human existence, and that is this spectrum of ill will. And if we can get that to even just go down to neutrality, the quality of our lives just improves so much. But if we can get it to go into the positive side, then we're approaching the divine. We're, We're not just approaching, we're entering. This is a beautiful word, divine. I mean, we hear divine, divine this, divine that. We will find that that's suitable. That's a suitable word. When we really open the heart and experience that, we know what the divine is. It's a foundation. It is not other than the practice of Dhamma. It is featured time and time again by the Buddha as a base for the establishment of realizations about reality, which constitute enlightenment. So these things are not two separate things. They cooperate with each other. They feed back between each other. They condition each other. We'll be on this theme mostly during this week.